0: Since you're a podcast listener, I bet there have been times you wish that you could talk directly with the host and podcast guest. Well, now you can jump into conversations with Farm to Table Talk guests by downloading the Clubhouse app to your iPhone or Android phone. Clubhouse is a social audio app allowing users to communicate in voice chat rooms, in this case with Farm to Table Talk podcast guests. Just download the app, Follow me, Roger Wasson, and join the Farm to Table Talk Clubhouse rooms. It's free and fun to finally talk with the people you've heard in the podcast. Two-way communications on Clubhouse. What a concept.
1: Farming and rural life isn't what it used to be. And that's a good thing in many ways. There is a greater diversity of ways to sell one's product. There is a consumer market that wants to come out to the farm. There's a consumer market that wants to get married on the farm or take a class or send their kids. They want to do CSA. Um, They want to do on-farm sales. There's a great diversity of opportunity for producers in many parts of the country that makes things more complex the legal situation the legal questions are more complex
0: it's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on farm to table talk with your host roger wasson Well, farming is changing and so many parts of the system are changing and that raises all types of new questions as farmers and food producers and cottage food industries are finding them in space that they've not been to before, that they are unfamiliar with, but they're legal questions. And how do you proceed probably part of the issue, too, is a lot of the typical lawyers that they've turned to are not really used to this frontier either. Well, I'm talking to somebody today that is right in the middle of that, that's providing education to farmers and to people in this evolving system. And I want to welcome Rachel Armstrong with the Farm Commons organization. Rachel, welcome to Farm to Table Talk.
1: Thanks so much. It's good to talk with you today.
0: Rachel, you're an attorney, but you're not really doing your own legal advice. You're you're educating people about uh, well, I'd let you describe this. I mean, this there's a, a lot changing in agriculture today. So I, I think maybe if you could first describe, if you would What you see out there and why you felt the need to be able to create something that's giving educational programs and legal, uh, you know, uh, legal education. I was starting to say advice, but that makes it sound like you're a lawyer that's looking for a fee for doing things, but you're doing a different kind of role. Explain that.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So if we were to rewind about, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, I was a young upstart at a college working on farms um, you know, doing doing the work, loving what I did, uh, but trying to figure out what my niche was really going to be in the agricultural community. So I didn't just work on farms. I worked for nonprofits. I worked for coalitions of farmers. I did all kinds of good stuff. But of course, I was searching for what was really, where I could really provide value to this community that, uh, that I loved. What kept coming up for me was that farmers and those who help them, have legal questions. We have legal questions about should we form an LL? Can we do you know this one, this thing we want to do? Um, what are the regulations around food safety? And we didn't have anywhere to turn for answers. Everyone always says, Well, you know, go talk to an attorney. Well, there were there were problems with that advice. Number one, attorneys are expensive, and a lot of the folks I worked with and for could not afford one. And even where they could afford one, they did not find the quality of advice that they really needed to help move forward. Maybe the attorney didn't understand farming. Maybe the attorney simply wasn't helpful in terms of what they were, um, the quality of their advice or how they helped the producer move forward. So this was a difficult experience all around. And I, I looked at that and I thought, well, gosh, you know, there must be there must be a better way Um and i of it, I'm very entrepreneurial at heart. So I was like, "Hmm, I think I'll figure it out. <laughs> and I literally enrolled in law school and um, entered to figure out how to meet the agricultural community's need for high quality, relevant legal information that helps our businesses move forward and become more resilient. So that is really the genesis of um, Farm Commons and we're a nonprofit today. We've been around eight years. Our mission is to help farmers and ranchers address their own legal vulnerabilities within a community of support. So that's, wow. Wow. And that's the basics of it.
0: Well, that's a good explanation. But when I think back of farmers getting, getting help from local lawyers, what conjures up an image in my mind of remembering a time where every small community had a couple of things you could count on. It had a church, I had a tavern, I had a funeral home, had a green elevator, and a local lawyer. The lawyer primarily was involved with sales, sometimes income tax, uh, and wills. And there wasn't much other reason to go to them. You know, I think that, you know, just kind of like you, you got down, if you took you took out uh, wills and and sales, buying or selling property, It was like 95% of what they did. And when I think about all that we hear about today, and we talk about on Farm to Table Talk, of people figuring out how they can go direct, people that ran into problems of their traditional farming models, and certainly we went through it with COVID, and all of a sudden decided, I want to create uh, an online program. I want to be able to go direct to consumers And, you know, I can imagine that the lawyers of those older days would just scratch their head and said, well, I don't know much about that. Maybe they wouldn't admit to that fact, but they wouldn't. They'd have to be doing you'd have to be paying them to do some of the education because what was direct to sales was people might take a steer into the local locker plant and sell somebody a half a beef or something like that. But this is entirely different. These farmers today are selling their products literally all over the world in some cases, or even got these cottage food industries now that are figuring out how they can make some products at home and ship them around the world too. Um, So I would think there's a a lot of people will be anxious to get your perspectives um, in this new world.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Farming and rural life isn't what it used to be. And that's a good thing in many ways. There is a greater diversity of ways to sell one's product. There is a consumer market that wants to come out to the farm. There's a consumer market that wants to get married on the farm or take a class or send their kids. They want to do CSA. Um, they wanna do on-farm sales. There's there's a great diversity of opportunity for producers in many parts of the country. But just as you as you alluded to, That makes things more complex, the legal situation, the legal questions are more complex and we have a problem. um, Even without the complexity of farming, keeping our small town rural attorneys um, in business anyways. So, you know, various factors, various forces at play, um, small town attorneys are becoming a a dying breed. They're, they're not there. The folks that have been there for uh, decades are retiring and no one is stepping in to replace them. So farmers are in, um, in a doubly bad situation where, um, if they're lucky enough to have an attorney in their town, he or she is probably not skilled. Um, uh, doesn't have a baseline knowledge in terms of the most innovative ways to farm um, and reach reach consumers. So those folks who are left out in the cold. Our most innovative farmers that are developing uh, new ways to uh, to make money in rural areas, new ways to market products, are left without any of the guidance or support that they need to make those businesses strong uh, and resilient. So. Legal education is hugely important.
0: So those lawyers that still do remain in the rural communities, are you able to offer help to them?
1: Uh, Yes, that is a big part of our mission. I'll admit our mission comes in about in three different parts. We educate farmers, we educate agricultural support persons, and lastly, attorneys. And that uh, the attorney piece of how we achieve our mission is the last to fall into place. We've been around for eight years and we I anticipate we'll really get a jump start on that aspect of our pro- programming in the next year or so. It's taken a little while for us to perfect exactly what we provide to farmers and farm service persons, but there's, uh, there's a, a huge need for us to educate attorneys and to help them better serve this market overall. It's not just a knowledge barrier. There is um, there's a cost barrier. There is a lack of understanding of the nuance of the farm business and how to best serve this market. So there's a, there's a few problems that we're, we're very excited to begin to tackle.
0: And then there's different kinds of services for, I know, um, like legal Zoom sort of things that that people can look at. And if you know what you should be doing, they, you know, they can help you maybe inexpensively put together an LLC or uh, an S-Corp or, and probably most of the farmers have already figured out how to do S-Corps anymore because that's something that's been on the, you know, the radar screen for quite a while. Um, but what tends to be the kind of issues that, uh, or say like the top two or three issues that are on farmers' minds, where they really need some um, extra insights or training uh, on legal matters. What are the, what would be the top ones?
1: Sure, sure. I would say the two most popular subjects that we help farmers out with um, is edu- or I'm sorry, is insurance and then business structures. Insurance is a huge area of interest and um, and concern. Uh, folks want to know, well, baseline, where are my liabilities? Where am I exposed to liability risk? You know, we have what I call these rural legends, a rural legend that if somebody falls in a hole on your property and breaks their ankle, they're going to sue you and take the farm, you know true or false? We have programming to help, you know, explore. Is it true or false? And based on that, what do you do about it? How do you manage that risk as a producer? Because you absolutely have power to manage that risk. We're very popular for our insurance-based programming because it's hard to find unbiased information from someone who is not actually selling you an insurance policy about the, the role that this product does or does not play in risk management on the farm. So that's a real big one for us. And a related topic is business structures. Should I form an LLC? Should I form an LLC as opposed to an S corporation? Or what if I want neither of these? Or what if my parents, you know, had a a, a partnership, you know, and now they're passing that to me? Should we be changing things? So we do a lot of work on helping farmers understand their options and getting good paperwork in place for a business structure that actually reduces risk and isn't purely ceremonial. And that's another subject we can get into. So those, to answer your question directly, it's insurance and business structures that are among the most popular. I'm going to sneak in employment law as a third um, a third a subject of rich with a complexity and um, problems and also solutions that we work on a lot.
0: So if you've decided and you've gotten yourself set up as an LLC or or an S-Corp, for example, and it seems to me like most everybody's one or the other. It's, it's rare to run into entities anymore that haven't found some something like that that they're looking at. Uh, but then you still need insurance uh, on top of it. So if you are... um Say, for example, if you're a farmer and you're going to start marketing your product, and all likelihood is the product's going to be perishable. Most of what's being marketed is going to have to have a cold chain. And, and, and to protect against the kind of issues, I would imagine, is that if it breaks down and the product spoils or has some other kind of condition that makes people sick, um, typically, how do you deal with that? I mean, because I think that's got to be one of the first or worries that somebody shipping fresh product or, around the country would be worried about is what happens if I'm, you know, I'm going to try not to get anybody sick, but if they do get sick, um, how am I protected from that?
1: Absolutely, great question and one that hangs heavy on the minds of many producers. Uh, the answer for most of the country, and by that I mean outside of California, for most of the country. Uh, what a farmer is going to do who, who whose primary business is to produce a raw agricultural product is they're going to go to their insurance agent and get a farm liability policy. Sounds great, right? Farm liability covers you for liabilities that occur on the farm or extend from the farm. Yes, that is true. But when it comes to a food safety incident, when it comes to someone getting physically sick from um, a pathogen within uh, that product, uh, it's, it's a little bit more like the Wild West in terms of whether there's actually coverage for that. We recently uh, conducted a program to uh, gather uh, farm liability policies from you know about a dozen producers, read them in close detail and research whether or not they covered um, a, a food-related illness, a pathogen-related illness. By and large, they do not. They do not provide any coverage for if someone gets sick from ingesting a foodborne um, pathogen uh, from th- that that originated on that farm.
0: So, like E. coli or Salmonella. Exactly. Listeria.
1: Exactly. And we started this project by saying, "All right, Mr. or Mrs. Farmer, do you think this is covered?" And almost to a farmer, they said, "Yes, I believe this is covered." And then we said, "Uh-oh, <laughs> we read the policy; it's not." So then what is a farmer to do? They can go back to their insurance agent and say, no, really, I want coverage for a foodborne illness, to which the insurance agent may say, all right, we've got something like that, and it's called a product liability policy. It's not a farm policy. It's a product liability policy, and that's going to give you, you know, and hopefully then the insurance agent will describe the characteristics of this coverage. So naturally, farmer says, what will it cost me? That is all across the board, but most farmers find it to be much too expensive. So getting actual product liability coverage for a raw agricultural product is, number one, difficult, and number two, expensive. So there are actually a huge percentage of farmers across the country that do not have this insurance for their product um, and, and can't afford it, even if they can find an insurance agent who will sell it to them. It's it's a structural problem it's not just it's not necessarily just the farmer's problem this is a structural problem where the insurance companies aren't selling this product in part because they don't have an accurate understanding of the real risks of raw agricultural products we've only just begun to to realize in the last decade or two the significance of foodborne illnesses from raw agricultural products and begun to trace them to their source and insurance policies have not come caught up with our evolving scientific understanding of foodborne illnesses so we're producers the agricultural community outside of california in particular are caught between a rock and a hard place on that subject in particular
0: wow so when you start looking for insurance products like that, I, I would imagine it doesn't. Have, you don't. They don't have to be looking at local. I mean, and so possibly they, there's somebody that's in, expertise is in that that uh, can write those kind of policies, and if they can do it in California, they could probably do it in New York, I suppose. Just uh, the ones that are experts are experts,
1: and that's emerging around the country. Yes, insurance used to be very locally driven uh, because you needed to have an agent. The internet has changed a lot of that. And there are specialty providers who are emerging that that serve, for example, cottage food businesses um, in home, you know, in home food production. We're seeing that those policies still have to be um, authorized for sale in an individual state. So the insurance company still does have to go to every state and submit that policy for approval for sale in that state. So some so there are some barriers to a completely like nationwide. Program, but again, some companies are are like, "Hey, that's a market opportunity." You know, we're gonna we're gonna pursue this um, cottage food business market. I haven't seen a lot of that development in in agricultural production itself. A lot of that is limited to farmers' markets and um, and value-added products. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful somebody will catch on to the need for um, a food safety liability product for growers specifically?
0: Well, you know, the cottage food industry is really interesting because it's growing and every farmer's market I go to, you're starting to see products also being sold there other than just the fresh produce right. but uh, that has been canned at home and jarred and sauces and, and pastas and all sorts of things and hummus and and in those particular cases, I would imagine, that they have to be able to, you know, set up a, a clean facility and follow all sorts of the proper procedures. But then but then they're just like a farmer then, in that they have to be able to be insured if there's some action because you're probably even more likely to be able to get Listeria picked up in a kitchen that's not spotless than, than you would off a of farm, which is more likely to be E. coli that that that's going to be affecting it. So Um, So do you find a way to reach out to those cottage food producers that are and in some cases, not just that they're producing at home, because uh, I think most cities end up having some sort of commercial kitchen available for small enterprises to go to go in and and do their baking or do their preparation in a a shared facility in the community. So do you you find a way to reach those people?
1: Yes, cottage food is is a very important subject for us because we are as a, as an organization motivated by farm resiliency. We want to see farm businesses be uh, successful and and thrive and create something that can last. The harsh reality is it's increasingly difficult to do that off raw agricultural products. Uh, you know, selling selling cauliflower does not pay the bills. Selling cauliflower pickles, you know, selling cauliflower pizza, that stands a chance of paying the bills. So we're especially passionate about um, supporting the opportunities for farmers to make um, a living to make a good living um, off what they do, so we tend to work the most with uh, farmers that are then pursuing cottage food and uh, value-added production like that as a way to enhance their uh, their profitability and grow grow their market. We also focus on um, agricultural producers who are to, who are pursuing these new markets because. That transition point is quite fraught legally. When you're transitioning from raw agricultural production to value-added pickles, jams, pizza, whatever it is, a lot of additional legal rules come into play. A lot of things change. Zoning compliance is at risk. Um, Employment law compliance is, is at risk. Your insurance needs change. And so many producers have no idea that they're about to cross this bridge that they're about to shift a lot of their legal obligations. And then they find out once they've invested in the additional infrastructure, the marketing, the planning to, to to do this diversification and then find out that there's a significant legal barrier to that. So that's that's of real concern to us, That that folks are actually becoming more vulnerable when they're trying to diversify and create more resiliency.
0: You know, I wonder whether there's any vulnerability to farmers even through the farmers markets programs in that they end up hiring people to represent them at the farmers markets and so they're staffing their tents and so forth. It would seem to me it's always possible that some it's so easy to get these little square ones. That's possible for somebody to put it on their personal uh, iPhones or Androids or something and ring them up, because I think that when I go to those spots now, it looks to me like 90% is my guess of the people that are purchasing with cards, and they almost all are using cards, don't ask for receipts. And so it would seem to me that there's some, some vulnerability. I don't know if there's any advice or counsel that you can deal with there, but whoever is working for you in, in a market could possibly even put wrong numbers in or even use again into their their own iPhones when, uh, when they're in that interaction directly with a consumer at a farmer's market. Is that an That's issue amazing. for any legal concern?
1: Um, issuing receipts... Uh, now, I have not researched that on on any sort of a fifty state basis. Um, some states may require that a receipt uh, be offered. Um, there's certainly um, obligations to um, you know to charge that uh, payment mechanism within a certain amount of time. Like you know, if you sell it, you. You know, today you can't wait like 45 days, you know, to run the charge. So there are there are absolutely rules and regulations around the individual sales. Take gift certificates for an example. Um, You know, you can sell a gift certificate in all 50 states, but whether or not you can associate, you know, a fee with that gift certificate, or whether you can even let that that gift certificate expire, some states prohibit the expiration of of gift certificates. So there are definitely nuances to be aware of uh, when it comes to just taking payment for staff. Right. I will say at this point though that one of the things that Farm Commons really tries to emphasize is, is helping producers not become too overwhelmed and not become too afraid of, of the law. It can be really scary and overwhelming. Like, Oh my goodness! What what do I not know? I've been selling gift certificates, you know. I've been selling CSA, and and I've been using Square or Stripe or whatever. Should I panic now? That's an important emotion for us to to think about. If somebody becomes afraid or overwhelmed, they are, you know, we might we might do that fight or flight thing where um, we we do nothing. You know, we we become uh, paralyzed by the indecision. And, um, and this is, that's bad. You know, that's bad for the community as a whole. It's bad for that entrepreneur. So it can be really important for uh, farm and food businesses as a whole to to take things in approachable bites and say, okay, what am I, what, what would I like to tackle now? Do I want to look at my LLC? Do I want to look at sales regulations? Uh, and to go into that knowing that we will come out the other side stronger there's a purpose there's a point we're not just following rules cuz we love them cuz some of us don't love them we're following rules because it makes us more resilient you know there's there's an end goal here that is worth pursuing and when we stay focused on that it can make um can make these pills a little easier to swallow so to speak uh, because these are vulnerabilities and and um and we don't want the farmer food business to go down because of them
0: Well, you know, one other spot I thought of, and that is the food hubs that are showing up all over the place. And uh, they end up having agreements that a farmer makes an agreement to be able to put the product through the food hub. And they're lining up, you know, customers that match up with whatever the farmer is producing. Are there... Perspectives you have to look out for in that area or farmers need to look at as far as that relationship with, again, the hub that they're putting their products through?
1: Absolutely. So sales and distribution, sales and distribution of product. Um, This is an area, of course, where we highly recommend written agreements, written Mm -hmm. agreements that are clear and address details like, obviously, what product and how much, but also quality standards. And once we get past, you know, quality standards, so what size and, and you know, um, what pack do we want this in? What, what you know, are they in bags? Are they loose? Um, all of those good, obvious things. But we also should go further. It's not just what do you want, but what happens if I don't have that? Or what happens if you disagree with whether I have met those standards? That's where we really encourage farmers, food producers, and distributors and food hubs to really challenge themselves. Challenge themselves to think about what happens when things don't go quite right. That product is a day late. Um, that product is, um, there's a dispute um, about whether it did meet the quality standards. Who tells who within what period of time and what evidence do we submit that you know XYZ has not been met? It. This can seem annoying. Like um, okay, it's enough work to just figure out what we're going to offer without going into all these contingencies. But in those contingencies is where our truly deep level of resilience is found. And not only that, in those complex conversations, that's where the relationship really flourishes. Mm-hmm. When I and the Food Hub have that depth of a conversation, we have really enhanced our understanding of each other's needs. We have grown you know, deeper in our um, relationship about what makes your business work and what makes mine work. Where where do we ha- where do we share common needs and values, and where are we where are we honestly divergent, and what can we do about that? Having those complex, in-depth conversations makes it much more likely that when the inevitable problem happens, we are prepared. We have a relationship that can handle that bump in the road because. Hey, we talked about it before, we have worked through a little bit of this uncomfortability and we have a track record and now it's no problem. So what could have become, a, what could have been a mountain is a molehill and we're all going to move on even though sure, yeah, you know, the product wasn't quite to the quality that we had agreed or my employee messed up, whatever it is, we can work through it.
0: Well you know we're talking about kind of farms that are in transition and resiliency and cottage food industry and the legal issues that need to be paid attention to uh is there any application for like community gardens? Because uh, some of them are becoming quite large scale. And, and so in, in many major cities, and I'm sure Minneapolis is is one of them, there's some pretty good sized community gardens. There's people that are employed there. They've got their product they're selling to people in the community. Is, Is there anything from a legal perspective that should be on their minds? If they're involved with a community garden, that's, that's also supplying a, the community
1: oh many issues many issues i will say (laughs) um one of them that we haven't talked about um in our time together yet is zoning zoning is a relevant issue for just about every producer no matter where they are urban or rural but particularly in urban environments because we can be assured that in an urban environment there is some sort of zoning code that affects what can or cannot be done on any individual parcel so a community can get together and can take over, you know, a parcel of land, petition in the city or whatever it is, like get ownership of that, that land or at least just access to it and start growing food on it. Usually that part is authorized, but what happens when somebody starts, say, selling their extra product? They set out some pints with some cherry tomatoes in them and a can and, and a sign that says $3. What happens when um, someone starts earning revenue off that parcel and then starts having volunteers come to help them? What if someone starts holding classes there? All of those things get a little dicey. Sure, maybe the city gave us permission to grow food there, but did they give us permission to engage in retail sales or to host events or to do all of the other wonderful things that happen on that property? And zoning isn't just a concern for those in urban environments or community gardens. it becomes a concern for uh, the farm in the countryside with a beautiful barn that wants to host weddings or that wants to have um, a grape harvest festival or uh, and no joke, this is spreading around the country goat yoga. If you want to have yoga with the goats all of a sudden that's that's a whole nother it's a whole nother can of zoning worms and we need to take a look at that and just to go back to my favorite um you know, uh, my favorite subject, insurance. Our insurance concerns are rich and real um, in the urban community garden, as well as on the rural farm that's now hosting weddings. We always need to talk about what's going to happen when someone is hurt. And the answer to that almost always is we will call our insurance company because that's why we buy insurance.
0: The local zoning thing is really interesting to me too, because, um, you know, again, I know of a lot of community gardens, but the other thing you hear a lot about is people that are continuing to try to push into their neighborhoods with chickens Mm -hmm. and even goats, if they can get away with it. So far, you don't hear much about pigs, although I've seen pop belly pigs kept as pets in, uh, in communities, but, Mm -hmm. and cattle are usually that on the fringe of, of town, but, uh, but really goats and chickens and and some places you hear that a community you can you can have I don't know some arbitrary number of chickens, but you can't have a rooster because they you know get the eggs but don't have the crowing I mean, is, right is is uh, you know I think about the people that just say, "Gee, I wish I could do that and I could do it in my backyard and it's i I don't really think of those as farmers, but it's it, it does seem it's kind of a sign of the time that's an issue that people have questions about,
1: absolutely. Absolutely, right. Even people with just expansive gardens who are um, who are like the community garden now selling uh, parts, you know, selling pints of cherry tomatoes. It's also an issue in urban areas for your. Uh, for your average homeowner um, when they become a CSA drop site. And we actually see cases around the country where neighbors become upset that 30 people are traipsing through someone's garage every Thursday afternoon to get their CSA box and file a zoning complaint saying that that's a retail operation that's occurring in a residential area and succeed in getting that CSA site shut down for being in violation of the zoning code. Stuff you wouldn't think of as You know a significant legal issue but um happens around the country
0: wow well you know i guess the thing is that uh with all of these issues and i'm sure we've just scratched the surface here they're really kind of a sign of uh an evolving kind of food system i mean the things that we're discussing are, are are recently uh, established. I mean, obviously, people have had gardens forever, and there was a little bit more local production maybe 75 or 80 or 100 years ago. But still, these are trends that are happening when you talk about food hubs and the cottage industries and, and farmers, even some cases, farmers that were large-scale that are trying to throttle back a little bit and get a little bit more midsize and have, you know, these other things, agritourism and so forth. But I think it's a it's a good time, really, for Rachel to kind of remind people that you're involved in the educational side of it. You're not trying to be their lawyer. Uh, If people would like to know more of the services that you offer, what are the kinds of things that they might be able to go online? Or if there are even a a small town lawyer that that wants to be able to tap into the educational programs, how do they do it?
1: Yeah, so on our website, we have about 2000 pages worth of detailed, high quality information about how the law affects the farm. Um, You know, uh, employment law, insurance, uh, food safety, business structures, um, sales and contracts, um, all that stuff. We have model documents, we have, you know, annotated agreements, uh, you know, detailed information that folks can find um, so all that is there for the, uh, for the viewing. Um, we're a membership-based organization. So when folks join as members, they get access not only to all of that information, but also to our commons community. And that's where we answer questions. So uh, sometimes it's not enough. You know, the document doesn't answer all the questions. And now we have some more. We are uh, ready and available to answer uh, more detailed questions that result from, um, from our work you will see our workshops for farmers and ranchers, as well as for farm support persons um, come back online. They are five week classes where we uh, give folks all the basics that they need to know. We call them the 10 um, legal best practices so that folks know the 10 legal best practices for a farm and how how farm support persons can, um, can encourage those. They're terrific. Um, People tell us they're among the best online workshops that they have attended because we know you don't want to sit there for an hour listening to someone yap about the law. It is interactive, interesting, relevant. So we work hard to make the law um, stimulating, enjoyable, to make it something that people want to take action on because we care about the resilience of our agricultural community.
0: And the website address again is what?
1: farmcommons.org.
0: Easy enough, farmcommons.org. So if you look at these next few years, you've talked about the journey, you've talked about why you got into it, we've talked about how agriculture is changing. Do you see anything on the near horizon that uh, either makes you a little bit more cautious about what's going to be happening in the next three to five years or particularly optimistic because you're in the in this space right now, but, uh, but how do you feel about this near-side future and what its implications are for farm law?
1: Yeah, I am constantly inspired by the innovation of agricultural communities and of, of farmers and ranchers in particular. Give them a challenge and they will find a way around it. And that's why I've never wanted to work in anything but the agricultural community is to to live surrounded by that that innovation, that problem solving inquisitiveness. It's it's just it's a delight um, to work in the agricultural community and certainly in the law. Nothing gets by farmers and ranchers. You know, they ask the hard, challenging questions. And that's that's where I love to be. And that's also what gives me hope for the very significant challenges that we have ahead of us. Um, the agricultural economy is is rough and COVID was 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 mind-blowing in a lot of ways. And we moved into it thinking, what is going to happen? How are we going to come out on the other side? And there is much that remains to be seen. But what I can rely on is the innovation um, and persistence of of this community. And we can bet that we'll be around to talk about how the law shapes um, the ongoing evolution of of the the agricultural economy right now.
0: Well, I really appreciate your being around to talk about that because this is a part of agriculture that we've got our attention. And we got to remember they got to wrap law around all of these changes that are taking place. And Rachel Armstrong, I'm glad Farm Commons is involved in that. And thanks for sharing with us this morning on Farm to Table Talk.
1: Thank you. It was lovely to talk with you. Mm-hmm.
0: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.